Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Carl Drake, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors who have the courage to join us today. And you are allowed to wear gloves in church, by the way. Since 1858, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I have a few announcements. A heartfelt thank you for your donations for personal care products and much, much more to the New Beginnings Pantry. They are truly appreciated. Our most recent new neighbors have come from Afghanistan, Burma, Syria, the Congo, Iraq, and more. And they send their thanks in many languages. Blood drive volunteers are needed. We are in need of volunteers to assist with the upcoming Red Cross blood, host, uh, blood drive hosted here on Monday, February 12th. You will be trained on the duties required. There are two types of volunteers needed, registration and donor aid. Registration volunteers check in donors as they arrive. Donor aid volunteers assist and supervise donors after they give blood and while they recover in the snack and canteen area. The shifts available to volunteer are Monday, February 12th, 9.50 a.m. to noon, and noon to 3 p.m. To volunteer, please see the most recent Circuit Rider newsletter. Visit us on social media, email admin at uuwasa.org, or phone 715-842-3697. Goods and Services Auction Meeting. Our first auction exploratory committee will be held on Sunday, January 14, today, at 11.45 in Yawkey Hall. Anyone with interest in being a part of this discussion is welcome to join this meeting. In the past, this spring event has been an in-person evening of fabulous food socialization and auction offerings. Proceeds have gone to general operating funds or specific projects for the church. We've raised this money when you, church members and friends, donated goods, skills, and services, and others bid on your offerings. If you have questions, please contact the Congregational Administrator. As we begin our worship together, let's take a moment to extend peace and blessing to one another. Please rise and greet your neighbors.
Okay, that's enough. Dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting, which is in the bulletin. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise in body or spirit for our opening hymn, number 1018 in the Teal Booklet. here talking but today is the day just uh, for some reason because it's her 20th anniversary uh, she and her husband Garrett wanted to actually spend some time together 
and asked me if I would be willing to do today's story for all ages. So actually, I'm not going to teach you a new song or read a story. Instead, we're going to talk about the songs that were picked for today with our focus on the music that would be appropriate for celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King's life. Now, most of you already know these songs that are part of our musical history. The spirituals that were first known as the sorrow songs on the plantations by the enslaved people. And then these songs later became important to all of us, their beloved. During the time of the civil rights movement, many of these became integral um, to motivating those who believed deeply that the time for equal rights for everyone was long overdue. Today, I would like to challenge us to sing two of those, maybe all of them, who knows, uh, very authentically. And what am I talking about? I don't know if you noticed, but the choir today was taking a glimpse at their book just once in a while, and the rest of the time, they were just singing it. Okay, everybody's allowed now to make a little gasp. What am I asking here? <laughs> Actually, you know these. So, when we get to Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Round and We Shall Overcome, just close your books, stand up, and sing them from the heart. If you forget a word, just listen to the people around you. They know them, the choir knows them. I'm gonna be shouting out the next verse. We can do this. We can do this, people. Okay, I mean, how many of you have memories of the freedom marchers singing as they went, holding their pieces of paper? <laughs> they didn't do that. Neither did the people sitting around the, uh, the bonfires in the summertime singing all of these, you know, from three from the hearts. These songs were actually originally learned orally, by ear, and were then passed to others in this manner. The words are easy, and again, if you get a little bit confused, lean on your neighbors and see what they're singing. They're probably right. And when we get to, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, can we please remember that this song was not sung to put babies to sleep. It was sung to wake up a nation. Let's make sure it sounds like that. Okay. Part two. Um, I think most of you know that I'm, I was a veteran teacher. I taught 43 years. 43 years, people. Let's have some applause. <laughs> In three states. Um, but I think one of the years that I found most interesting and fulfilling was the very first one which happened in the school year of 1968. 1968. How many of you, do any of you remember 1968? <laughs> there you go. Oh my goodness. To put it into historical perspective, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April of 1968. Such sadness, such anger, such a difficult time. Unfortunately, you can't pick the times in which you were born, so you just go on with your lives. After graduating from the University of Northern Iowa, 
My husband and I packed everything we owned into our car. Wasn't much, it all fit. And along with our eight-month-old daughter, drove to Fort Myers, Florida, crossing the state line uh, from southern Georgia into Florida on the same day that Robert Kennedy was killed. Uh, to say the least, it was a turbulent time. Did I mention Vietnam? I also believe there is some kind of a political convention going on in Chicago that same summer. Were things relaxed and calm? No, heck no. But we were hired to teach in the Lee County Schools in Fort Myers, and I was at the Paul Dunbar, Dunbar Elementary School. Uh, Paul Dunbar was a very, very famous poet. Wonderful, wonderful works. Uh, Dunbar Elementary was an all-black school located in the midst of the black community. 1968 was the last year of public school segregation in the state of Florida, where they had successfully avoided full integration by implementing a program called Freedom of Choice. Under Freedom of Choice, black students were allowed to choose to attend all-white schools although most didn't. Segregation was firmly in place. It was in the next year, the next school year, that full integration was implemented. I was one of three or four white teachers who joined a mostly black faculty. And there's about six or seven black kids in, the, in this, uh, excuse me, in this school. I joined a very welcoming, supportive faculty. I am forever grateful for their guidance as I learned to navigate that first uh, year of teaching. And boy, I could tell you. Oh, huh. one, of the, one of the most memorable moments of my first year, though, came not during my regular teaching hours, but during an evening PTO meeting. The gym was packed with parents that were filled with questions about what the next school year would bring as integration became a reality. I think top on their list of things that they were so anxious about was, are our schools going to be closed? Yes, they were, although some of them later reopened, but this, those schools were so important to that community and to have the prospect of, okay, Integration is great, but we have our community too. Uh, it was a very mixed emotions year. Huh. I had been asked to play the piano for the opening of the meeting with the song that they told me was, was traditional whenever the community met. Lift every voice and sing. You will find as we sing it, it has a lot of words, but we can do it. This rural Iowa girl, of course, had never heard of this song, written by James Weldon Johnson. He and his brother had written this in 1900 to be sung by 500-some elementary school uh, students in northern Florida. Uh, this is the same James Weldon Johnson who became one of the founders of the NAACP. The song is a reminder that each generation has to lift their voices along with those in their community to demand and protect everyone's human rights. 
It is the very definition of a goosebump song. So the music was handed to me, and I began to play, and the people sang. You cannot imagine how powerful and strong the singing of a group of motivated, apprehensive, but excited parents can be. I will never forget that sound, and I am forever grateful to have had that experience. So, in summary, we are going to sing two of our hymns today very authentically with help from the choir, without the aid of the books. We can do it. And we will end with one of the most important songs in our American patriotic folio. And that is the story of all ages today. Thank you. bless the students here and joining us online, please join in singing our children's song. The words are in the bulletin. to invite you all to join me now in a spirit of prayer and meditation. If your feet are crossed, uncross them. Put them flat and firm on the ground. If you're comfortable closing your eyes, now is a good time to close them. So we're taking a moment to become aware of our bodies in this space. And so focus your attention on the top of your head. The air moving in this room. Now move your attention downwards into your jaw. If there's any tension in there, let it out. Now to your shoulders. Take a deep, full breath up into your chest and shoulders and slowly breathe it out. And now focus on your stomach. Take a deep, full breath, pushing your stomach fully out. And let the breath out. And let us pray.
Great spirit of life, it seems that joy is always mixed with pain. And each of us is burdened by a most important problem. When we forget to hope, these burdens threaten to shut us down, to isolate us and cut us off from one another in the holy. And yet we know because your presence has been real for us, we know that all of creation is connected. Every stone and grain of sand, every drop of rain and muddy trail, every frightened child, all the sick and broken, all those who have forgotten where they came from. All of creation is firmly cradled in the healing warmth of love's embrace. O faithful promise of new beginnings, we pray for those in need of healing and reconciliation. We pray for those cut off from community by violence, hatred, racism. We pray for children and for their hopes and dreams. Now let us call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for prayer hymn number 168 in the Gray Book. One more step.
Let there, being, let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place, which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now the keepers of the dream. The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. You can place a gift in the basket as it passes by. You can also visit our website, uuwausau.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift, hopefully recurring, with your credit card or debit card. Thanks so much for your support. Okay, this one goes, ain't gonna let nobody turn me round, turn me round, turn me round, ain't gonna let nobody turn me round, I'm gonna keep on a-walking, keep on a-talking, marching to the promised land. reading is a poem entitled The House of Belonging by David White. 
And the poet says, I awoke this morning in the gold light turning this way and that, thinking for a moment it was one day like any other. But the veil had gone from my darkened heart and I thought, it must have been the quiet candlelight that filled my room. It must have been the first easy rhythm with which I breathed myself to sleep. It must have been the prayer I said, speaking to the otherness of the night. And I thought, this is the good day you could meet your love. This is the gray day someone close, could, close to you could die. This is the day you realize how easy the thread is broken between this world and the next. And I found myself sitting up in the quiet pathway of light, the tawny, close-grained cedar burning around me like fire, and all the angels of this housely heaven ascending through the first roof of light the sun has made. This is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all the things that has taken me so long to learn to love. This is my temple, my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house like the house of belonging. Here it ends our reading. Our music meditation, as Margaret said, is sung. Are they allowed to use their hymn books on this one? I forgot. No, okay, you can't look at the hymn books <laughs> at all. We shall overcome. be free. We shall
shall all live in peace. The first president of the Unitarian Universalist Association was a man by the name of Dana McLean Greeley. Now, Dana died in 1986, long before I ever would have got a chance to know him. But I'm lucky to know a few people that knew Greeley pretty well. And what they all say is that Greeley was a man of amazing energy. And so even after his presidency of the UUA ended, Greeley kept up this president-like schedule, and he would travel all over the world giving speeches on topics ranging from the civil rights movement to Vietnam. And in 1970, shortly after his presidency came to an end, he traveled right down the road from us to Marshfield, and he gave an address celebrating the opening of a medical center. And the very next morning, he drove from Marshfield up here to Wausau to see this church because this church was on Greeley's bucket list of churches that he wanted to see. And he sat down for a breakfast with the church's then minister in 1970, a dear friend of mine by the name of John Robinson, for a quick bite of breakfast before he drove all the way back down to Chicago to give another speech before getting on a plane to fly back home to Concord, Massachusetts, where he was the freshly installed minister at First Parish. And so throughout Greeley's ministry, he would walk side by side with Martin Luther King many, many times. They marched arm in arm in Selma. They dined together in Hollywood. 
And they even traveled together all the way to Geneva, Switzerland twice. The first time so that Martin Luther King could give an address to an international delegation telling an international community about the struggles of the civil rights leaders and what they were facing in the Deep South, especially as peaceful protesters were increasingly attacked by the police and counter-protesters. And so in 1985, this was just one year before Greeley died of cancer, he sat down with researchers at Washington University in St. Louis who wanted to interview him about his involvement with the civil rights movement. They also wanted him to tell a little bit about the murder of the Unitarian minister James Reeb, who was killed by white supremacists in Selma, Alabama, but also to speak very candidly about his personal relationship with Martin Luther King. And so one of the questions Greeley is asked, it goes something like this. What was your first impression of Dr. King? And without a moment's hesitation, Greeley says the depth of his commitment to what he believed in. And though Greeley didn't know it at the time, back the very first time that he met King was actually when King was still a student, a theology student specifically at Boston University, and Greeley, at that point in his life, was just this new, fresh-faced minister at Arlington Street Church. And so King, he confided in Greeley, and he said, you know, Dana, I used to sit for your sermons back in my student days. And Greeley is very sure to tell the interviewer that had he known that Martin Luther King was sitting in his pews, he would have hopped out of the pulpit and put King up in there instead. Now on the surface there, are a lot of differences between King and Greeley. Greeley was a fifth-generation Unitarian, the son of rather well-to-do New Englanders. Martin Luther King, as many of you all know, was the son of a Baptist preacher, the grandson of sharecroppers in Georgia. I could list the differences for a long time between these two, but rather than focus on that, what I want us to focus on this morning is what Greeley said about King that touched him so much, which was King's devotion. So according to King, one of the people who had a very big influence on his ministry was a theologian and pastor by the name of Howard Thurman. So King first met Thurman when King was still a student at Boston University, where Thurman at the time was the dean of the university's chapel. And it was under Thurman's influence that King encountered for the first time the teachings of nonviolence. If you can imagine this, way back in the 1930s, Thurman and another delegation alongside of him, they traveled to India to meet face-to-face -face with Gandhi, who counseled Thurman and the other early civil rights leaders to use nonviolence in all of their tactics to fight institutional oppression. And so Thurman was committed to not just a physically integrated society, but Thurman had this vision of a spiritually integrated society as well. Here's a story to illustrate what I'm trying to say by that. So Martin Luther King was stabbed at a book signing in New York City. And when Thurman found out that King had been stabbed, he traveled from Boston to New York to see King in the hospital. And this is what he told him. He said, Martin, I want you to stay in bed. Now, a little bit of historical context. This was 1958. So bear in mind, this advice was coming from someone who knew how important 
king's leadership was. Thurman knew that much of the movement at this point depended on king's physical presence at marches and demonstrations, and yet he said, stay in bed. Now Thurman's advice might seem counterintuitive, but it's not if you think about it. Here's what Thurman later told a reporter he told King, quote, to rest his body and mind with healing detachment and to take a long look that only solitary brooding can provide, end quote. In other words, Thurman told King to pray, to stay still, to be quiet so that he could listen to his own inner wisdom and to pray to God. Thurman's writings, his preaching, and his counsel, they always spoke of prayer and contemplation and social change in the very same breath. For Thurman, they were impossible to separate. He often said that both are needed if we ever want to experience lasting change. And so when Thurman was young, one of the people who influenced his thinking was this guy by the name of Meister Eckhart, who said in one of his writings, I love this quote, he said, you can only spend in good works what you have earned in contemplation. I'm going to read it again. You can only spend in good works what you earn in contemplation. What Eckhart and Thurman teach is valuable for people at any time, but I think it's especially valuable for us today. I think that this lesson is simple to summarize, but the hard part comes whenever you try to perform it. Regular, quiet time with God and our inner guide so that when the time comes, we have the strength and the courage to do the work that is ours to do. And also, so that we, knew, so that we know what work is ours in the first place. I tend to think that in today's hyperconnected world, there's a tendency to think of social change as something that happens in marches and protests in Washington and Madison. But what history shows, what Greeley's witness reminds, and what King's legacy offers is an invitation to participate in the struggles for human rights in as many ways as we can imagine. There's this seldom told story of the civil rights movement and what it has to do with all those hundreds of people behind the scenes. For all those people that were marching that you see in the old newsreels and all the old photographs, for all those hundreds of people, there were hundreds more who stayed home and stayed back to cook meals, to babysit children, lawyers who filed briefs, people who taught a generation of activists how to not use violence in the face of people who are spitting in your face. The hundreds of people who were unable to march but who opened their churches so that people could gather to pray, so that people could make phone calls, so that their living room could be turned into an hospital. Thurman believed that the healing of the world starts right in us. It starts when we retreat into the quiet of our minds, into the sanctuary of our hearts, into that time and space when we listen for what our inner guide, for what God is assigning us as our holy work. In 1978, at the First Unitarian Church in Berkeley, California, Thurman gave a wonderful lecture that you can find entitled Mysticism and Social Action. In it, he said this. I'm going to quote him. 
The mystic's concern with the imperative of social action is not merely to improve the conditions of society. It is not merely to feed the hungry, not merely to relieve human suffering and human misery. If this were all, in and of itself, it would be important surely, but this is not all. The basic consideration has to do with the removal of everything that prevents God from coming to God's self in us. Whatever there is that blocks this, it's what calls to action, end quote. I'm going to summarize Thurman to the best of my ability. Here's another way to say what I think he's trying to say. There is a doubleness in all of us. I'll tell you what I mean. All of us, all of you, we've all been given these hearts that can love fearlessly and fiercely with this stunning capacity for amazing acts of kindness. And at the same time, those very same hearts know how to use the precise word and the precise tone of voice that can cut the people we love down to the bone. These hearts and these minds that we've been given, we can devise gadgets that take people from the earth to the moon and back. And these same minds and these same hearts invent devices that turn cities and the people in them to ash. It is because of this doubleness that Thurman invites us to seek transformation first right here in our heart. Transformation that then ripples outward and transforms the world. And it was this teaching that lodged into the heart of the young Martin Luther King. Now maybe you don't think this message is important for us, I do. I'll tell you why I think it. Because Unitarians, as much as we might not like to admit it, we share this tendency that is also evident with the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Republicans, I'm sorry, and the Democrats. I'm sorry if I'm leaving someone out, I don't intend to. But in any case, what all these groups share, what we have a tendency to do is point out all the fault on someone else's side of the street. Now, the point of this was hammered home to me over Christmas. One of my family members, we had this quiet moment together, and he said, you know, Brian, one of the reasons I don't go to church anymore is because the people I see at church, conservative and liberal alike, they often seem like some of the meanest, most arrogant, and judgmental people I have ever met. People in church, they're really quick to offer me a bunch of advice about how I'm supposed to run my life, and meanwhile... What they seem to be doing is ignoring all of the baggage they schlep around everywhere they go. Maybe you've heard this famous line before. It's spoken by Jesus. He says that people often like to point out the fleck in someone else's eye and overlook the log in our own. So as I listen to this person tell me all the reasons why he doesn't go to church, I started to recognize myself and a lot of what he was saying. I've judged people way too harshly. I've neglected prayer and contemplation, always trying to busy myself with pointing out all the flecks in other people's eyes. Now, I can't say this for sure, but I bet, I bet that if Greeley were alive today, 
what he would remind us is he would say that this faith that we inherited never gives us a license to be critical of everything that we don't like. Nor is this faith an escape hatch into some sort of private bliss where we can pat ourselves on the back for being green or informed or awoken or whatever. What Greeley would say, what his ministry offers us, is a reminder that this faith is a baptism into the reality of your longings, both good and bad. And it is a daring to get you to trust that even the smallest actions can help put out the fires that rage in your heart and that rage in the world. I think this is why in a time of violence and protest with images of police attacking peaceful citizens, with scenes of black girls and boys being barred from school, that Thurman dared Martin Luther King to stay in bed and pray. Because there isn't a person alive who doesn't need healing in some way or another. And so before we wrap up, I'm going to tell you one last story. In 1959, King preached a sermon called A Tough Mind and a Tender Heart at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was the minister. So over the course of this sermon, he warns against something psychologists today call confirmation bias. You all know what confirmation bias is? I'll tell you. It's a fancy word that basically describes how all of us are really good at finding information that already props up what we believe. It helps us not have to change our mind about anything we believe. Do you all know someone with confirmation biases? Have you looked in the mirror lately? Anyways, <laughs> this is what the sermon is about. And I'm going to quote just two short paragraphs from the sermon. But before I do, I have an assignment for you. I want you to listen very, very closely for what King says is our best defense against this tendency towards fault-finding and resisting change. Here's Martin Luther King. I am thankful that we worship a God who is both tough-minded and tender-hearted. God is neither hard-hearted nor soft-minded. He is tough-minded enough to transcend the world, but he is tender-hearted enough to live in it. He does not leave us alone in our agonies and struggles. He seeks us in dark places and suffers with us. When our most tireless efforts fail to stop the surging sweep of oppression, we need to know that in this universe is a God whose matchless strength is a fit contrast to the sordid weakness of people. But there are also times when we need to know that God possesses love and mercy. When days grow dark and nights grow dreary, we can be thankful that our God combines a creative synthesis of love and justice that will lead us through life's dark valleys and into sunlit pathways of hope and fulfillment. Friends, if we want to be part of the healing of the world, the healing that our world needs, our only hope is to have a tough mind and a tender heart. King's invitation matters as much then as it does today because it is an invitation to devotion, faith and humility and gentleness and love and doing no harm 
and removing obstacles that get in way of the truth our hearts need to hear. But most of all, it is an invitation to be tough-minded and tender-hearted. And now, if you will, please rise and sing hymn number 149, Lift Every Voice and Sing.
And if you're here with someone, I invite you to reach out, take the hand of someone nearby. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. Give yourself a gold star for coming to church on such a cold day. You are all the real winners this morning. See you soon.